Let's open our Bibles uh, for the last time for a while to the book of Nehemiah, chapter 13. We're going to look at this final chapter of this glorious book. Nehemiah chapter 13, open your Bible, navigate on your device, follow along. The topic, decades after he first came and saw the ruined wall, Nehemiah reflects on his service to the Lord. Title of our message, I came, I saw, I constructed. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, thanks for, uh, just thank you, Lord. We want to express gratitude this morning for who you are and what you've done. Not just for us, Lord, as great as that is, but for all those, uh, Lord, who've come to you and, and all those who you desire to draw to yourself by your spirit. We pray, Lord, that if there's someone in this meeting this morning that doesn't know you, that you would be working on their heart, revealing the love of God through Christ Jesus, letting them know that Jesus died and rose and ascended into heaven for them, that you might declare them righteous and give them eternal life. Help us as we study the word. As always, Lord, there's so much more that we could say than we are able to say. And I pray that your spirit would compensate by ministering to each heart. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. And those who agreed said, amen. What do you want on your tombstone? The usual answer was pepperoni and cheese. Possibly a little morbid for mediocre frozen pizza, but the television ad campaign was memorable. The one I watched on YouTube, uh, the outlaws are getting ready to hang the sheriff And they ask him what he wants on his tombstone. He goes, pepperoni and cheese. And tombstone pizza comes up. Not your best pizza, but it's memorable. What do you want on your tombstone, the real one that will mark your grave? Mathematician Ludolf Van Koyen, first person to calculate the value of pi to 35 decimal places, it is inscribed on his tombstone. Rodney Dangerfield wanted to be remembered for his comedy even after death, So he chose the epitaph, There Goes the Neighborhood. You gotta love Mel Blank's tombstone. If you don't recognize his name, you'd recognize his voices. Bugs Bunny, Daffy Duck, Porky Pig, Tweety Bird, Sylvester the Cat, Yosemite Sam, Foghorn Leghorn, Marvin the Martian, Pepe Le Pew, Speedy Gonzalez, Wiley Coyote, the Roadrunner, and the Tasmanian Devil were all voiced by Mel Blank. For the man who voiced so many of our favorite cartoon characters, the epitaph on his tombstone reads appropriately, that's all, folks. (laughs) Tombstones have gone high tech. Some have RFID tags embedded in them that can uh, store text and pictures. When you're near with a smartphone equipped with the technology, the information is displayed on your screen so you can walk through the cemetery and see pictures and read text about the deceased. More recent tombstones utilize QR codes and near-field communication. Now, before you can answer what you want on your tombstone, we should take a look at what Nehemiah said about being remembered. He wasn't necessarily talking about his epitaph, but he wanted to be remembered for certain things. And so in the last two verses of the chapter, verse 30 and 31, thus I cleansed them of everything pagan. I also assigned duties to the priests and the Levites, each to his service, and to bringing the wood offering and the first fruits at the appointed times, Remember me, O God, for good. First and foremost, Nehemiah wanted to be remembered by God for good that he had done. He was concerned with what God valued, not with what men might value. And so that's an important foundation to anything that you want to say about uh, how you want to be remembered. 
Nehemiah more specifically asked the Lord to remember his good in two houses, the house of the Israelites individually and the house of God, the temple. If God values those two houses, so must we. So I'll organize my comments around those two houses. Number one, God will remember you for your conduct in his house. And number two, God will remember you for your conduct as his house. Let's take a look in uh, the middle verses at our conduct in his house. Now, I haven't told my family yet, this is kind of the announcement, but I want to be buried in the Kreuzberg district of Berlin. That's where Cafe Strauss is located. It's a cafe located within a cemetery. And believe it or not, cemetery cafes are increasingly popular in Europe. A Google search termed up a couple of cafes in the U.S. near cemeteries, uh, which really isn't that uh, unusual. I mean, people visit old cemeteries as tourist attractions, and so you would expect some businesses uh, to be around there. But I couldn't find one that was inside a cemetery. We could be the first in America. Maybe the good people at Grangeville Cemetery would let me set up a coffee cart during funerals. I mean, wouldn't that be refreshing to you right after the funeral or during the funeral? I have a working name for it, death before decaf. (laughs) I don't know, maybe that's insensitive, but... Now, I know I've gone too far, but I'm really trying to make a point. All of us want to be remembered for something more than a hobby or an activity. I don't want people to remember me for owning 75 coffee makers or liking civet coffee, go ahead and Google that, or creating the hashtag pastors poor. We ought to be remembered for something that God values. Uh, And I've been to enough funerals over my career to know that oftentimes people are remembered for things that are, uh, well, things that you don't want to be remembered for, even some good things that are ultimately not eternal and not what God values. So let me set the stage for chapter 13. After a dozen years as governor in Jerusalem, Nehemiah returned to the Persian Empire And then according to verse 6, after certain days, he returned to Jerusalem. We don't know for certain how long he was gone. Not too long, but long enough for the Israelites to once again neglect their houses and the house of God. Verse 1 begins, on that day. In verse 4, you read, now before this, Nehemiah began a topic and then he pivoted to talk about something else. Verses 4 through 22 are the pivot describing how the Israelites were neglecting the house of God. Verses 1 through 3 connect with verses 24 through 31 to describe how the Israelites were neglecting their own houses. And so we're going to look at, uh, we're going to begin in verse 4 and take that second topic first. Now before this, Eliashib the priest, having authority over the storerooms of the house of our God, was allied with Tobiah. If you've been here for any of the studies, you probably remember Tobiah was at the beginning of the book during Nehemiah's first stint in Jerusalem. He vigorously opposed all Nehemiah's efforts to rebuild the wall. Tobiah had married into a Jewish family, as did his son, even though this was prohibited by God's law, and it was actually a sinister strategy to undermine uh, not just Nehemiah, but the things of God. Verse 5. He had prepared for him a large room where previously they had stored the grain offerings, the frankincense, the articles, the tithes of grain, and the new wine and oil, which were commanded to be given to the Levites and the singers and the gatekeepers and the offerings for the priests. It was incredible 
that such a person would be held in high esteem. He was an enemy of Nehemiah. He was an enemy of God in the temple and the rebuilding of the temple and the wall. Uh, And he was a Gentile who had no place with the people of God. Worse yet, Eliashib gave him a room in the temple itself the size of a small warehouse and allowed Tobiah to live there. Verse 6, but during all this, I was not in Jerusalem, for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I had returned to the king. Then after certain days, I obtained leave from the king, and I came to Jerusalem and discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah in preparing him a room in the courts of the house of our God. I don't know, I would have liked to have been there when Nehemiah found out that his non-believing Gentile arch enemy was living in the temple. I don't, know, I don't know if his mind could handle something like that. It would be like Superman finding out Lex Luthor had a winter home in the Fortress of Solitude, that kind of a thing. Can this apply to us in God's house on earth in the church? Well, it comes to mind that we might become Tobiah-like. The Apostle Paul warned believers to not give place to the devil. It's not as though he or a demon can possess us. They cannot. But if I willfully yield myself to his temptations, if I give my flesh over to the world, then I give the devil a place, maybe we could call it a foothold or a beachhead, from which to operate in my life and to further ruin me. And believe me, the devil's never going to be content with any portion of your life until he's ruined all of your life. There's a common uh, mistake that all of us make from time to time that if we indulge ourselves a little bit but set limits, uh, then we have the best of both worlds. But those limits keep getting moved until you're deep in over your head. The devil is a relentless foe. We can't afford to let him have a foothold or a beachhead in our lives from which to operate. And so in that sense, this applies to us as uh, the temple of God and within the temple of God on earth. And it grieved me bitterly, therefore, I threw all the household goods of Tobiah out of the room. I'm reading between the lines, but I don't think Nehemiah packed up anything with foam or hired movers. Uh, I get the impression, and this is just my impression, that he found out that Tobiah was living there, couldn't believe it, went there immediately, saw that it was true, and started throwing stuff out. Uh, And Nehemiah, as we'll see in a minute, you already know this, but we'll see even more in a minute, not not somebody to be messed with uh, when when he was into a religious zeal. Uh, And so he just takes Tobiah's stuff and he throws it out uh, violently. Then I commanded them to cleanse the rooms and I brought back into them the articles of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. Somebody like Billy the exterminator was called upon to spiritually fumigate the space Tobiah had been occupying. Uh, I'm sure there was a ritual cleansing, but I I think it was symbolic as well uh, that this filthy individual who had no part with the God of Israel, should never have even been in that part of the temple, let alone living there as if he was someone special. Then Nehemiah returned it to its intended purpose. To finish the becoming Tobiah-like illustration, if you confess your sin, Jesus is faithful and just to forgive it and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. We might say that you can evict sin at any time. Don't wait. Do it now before you begin to feel at home with it. And so essentially, Nehemiah evicted uh, Tobiah. Those of you who are landlords, 
eviction can be a tiresome and, and hard process trying to get people out of the house uh, that you're renting them. Not if you're Nehemiah, you just start throwing their furniture out into the courtyard. Uh, don't try this in Kings County or anywhere else. But, uh, and, and then he, and he says, now I need this whole place exterminated. I can't believe that we had this guy in here. Verse 10, I also realized that the portions for the Levites had not been given them, for each of the Levites and the singers who did the work had gone back to his field. Temple servants were supposed to be uh, supported by these offerings. They were being withheld, forcing the Levites and the singers away from God's house to do manual labor in the fields. And so ultimately, the people were the ones that were suffering. When you don't have priests and singers uh, to do the ministry of the temple, uh, yes, it's their suffering because they have a lack of support and they have to go out and work for a living or at least earn their keep. But God had put that in place for the benefit of his people so that they could come to the temple and rejoice and sing and have offerings taken and, and all of those kinds of things. And so when God's work isn't supported, you're not hurting the work itself, you're hurting yourself because God wants to have it as a place to minister and for you to be uh, ministering to others. So verse 11, I contended with the rulers and said, why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their place. Now before the ministry, I was in a few corporate meetings where folks got set in their place. It wasn't pretty. You've probably been in meetings like that, not just corporate meetings, but just staff meetings or different meetings where somebody is just blown a gasket because of something you or somebody else has done. And um, it's expletives not deleted time. You know, it's just crazy talk. But uh, I've had a couple of those. Sometimes I earned it uh, and I had to humble myself. But uh, it, that's the kind of meeting that uh, Nehemiah had. Only no expletives. Uh, he, just, he just said, hey, why is the house of God forsaken? That's a great question. Once you get all these guys together who had forsaken the house of God, and just say, why is the house of God forsaken? And there's no answer. There's no, you know, what, there's no spin to that, and you know you're in trouble. Verse 12, then all Judah brought the tithe of the grain and the new wine and the oil to the storehouse. The prophet Malachi, a contemporary of Nehemiah, had a colorful way of describing the Jews withholding their tithe. He said they were robbing God. Let that sink in. Malachi has a great book, and at one point he says, you're robbing God, and they say, how have we robbed him? They couldn't imagine it, and he said it was because they weren't bringing their tithes and offerings. Now, I should probably say this more. I'll say it now. If you give anything at all to Calvary Hanford, God bless you. We are thankful. Believe it. Uh, I mean, we, sometimes I, and I mean this in, in I think, with a proper humility. I, I, it's amazing to me people come here. Uh, you know, it's just a spirit-led thing. There's, there's no draw from the pulpit. You know, there's no Charles Spurgeon or uh, anybody like, I mean, we're just a group of believers who, who get together and minister to each other and those that support the ministry, what a tremendous blessing it is to us. Now, you know, tithe means 10%. We don't think New Testament believers are commanded to give 10% of their before tax income, although some graciously do. It's not commanded, but since it was so common, some Christians adopted. So tithing, not commanded, but uh, good practice. Um, that's as far as I would take that. Whether it's 10% more or less, you are to give regularly, cheerfully, 
and sacrificially as you have purposed in your heart. Those are principles that you can derive from Paul's writings mostly in the New Testament. Regular, sacrificial, cheerful giving as you have purposed in your heart. In other words, as you and the Lord have decided. Now, the hard truth is that the majority of believers don't tithe and neither do they give in the New Testament way either. And so the question would be, am I robbing God? Uh, And so when I tell people, oh, you don't have to tithe, it doesn't mean God isn't wanting to minister to you about giving regularly, cheerfully, and sacrificially. And so I would warn people who give nothing at all uh, that you might be in that terrible realm of robbing God. Now, one reason we don't pressure folks to give, if you give nothing and you're not reproved by the exhortation, you might be robbing God, nothing I can say will matter. Uh, There's no more, because we want the word of God to have its effect in your life, not the word of men. You all know that there are ways to get people to give and techniques that people use and sales things. I just went through a a horrifying five hours uh, split over two days of leasing a a car. And I lease cars because they're easy. You know, you go in, I want that car, here's your contract, you're done. Not this time. And I'll tell you about it sometime, but it was wild. I walked out of the dealership, I got to say some great things, uh, they followed me out to the car. They called me five times before I got home. I mean, it was fantastic. I was having so much fun. You can't even believe it. If you need somebody to go with you to help you buy a car, I'm your guy. I don't know anything about cars, but I don't have any problem negotiating. But anyway, uh, it, you know, now I forgot what I'm talking about. But uh, anyway, there are techniques that you can use to put pressure on people. But I would rather just, I'm, I have a cleaner conscience to say, hey, if you don't give anything to God, you're robbing God. Next verse. And if that doesn't mean anything to you, what can I say? And what good would it do if we took a second offering or brought a starving child up here or something like that? I mean, it's really between you and the Lord. Verse 13, I appointed as treasurers over the storehouse Shilamiah the priest and Zadok the scribe of the Levites, Padaiah, uh, and next to them was Hanan, the son of Zakur, the son of Mataniah. For they were considered faithful, and their task was to distribute to their brethren. Remember me, O my God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for its services. Nehemiah set in order the daily ministry of the house of God. They were the good deeds that he wanted remembered. With temple life out of order, so was their daily worship life. It affected, for example, their observance of the weekly Sabbath. And so verse 15, in those days I saw people in Judah treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in sheaves and loading donkeys with wine and grapes and figs and all kinds of burdens, which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them about the day on which they were selling provisions. Men of Tyre dwelt there also who brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the children of Judah and in Jerusalem. I contended with the nobles of Judah and said to them, what evil thing is this that you do by which you profane the Sabbath day? Do not your fathers do thus? And did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? Yet you bring added wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. So it was at the gates of Jerusalem as it began to be dark before the Sabbath that I commanded the gates to be shut. And I charged that they must not be opened until after the Sabbath. Then I posted some of my servants at the gates so that no burdens would be brought in on the Sabbath day. 
So Nehemiah forced them to obey the Sabbath uh, regulations. They were trying to get around the Sabbath. You know, the Jews couldn't work on the Sabbath, but they said, well, what if Gentile merchants came in? We can't sell things. That would be work. But if the Gentiles come in and sell, uh, maybe we can do that. And so they had, uh, instead of the Thursday night uh, marketplace or whatever, they had the Sabbath marketplace. It was, uh, instead of resting, they were negotiating prices and buying different things. And it was a, quite a commercial enterprise. And so Nehemiah just stood up and said, this is evil. And again, I love Nehemiah, straightforward. We all think we're straightforward, and, and I think at times we're forced to be, but Nehemiah was a straightforward guy. What evil thing is this that you do profaning the Sabbath? Nobody could say, well, wait a minute. No, there's, there's no waiting. And Nehemiah is going to show you what he'll do to you if you argue with him in a minute. It's pretty cool. He forced them to obey the Sabbath. Now, Israel was a theocracy. They weren't free to keep the Sabbath or not. This wasn't just a, uh, you know, a holiday that some people could take and others shouldn't. We are free from the Sabbath entirely in terms of observing it physically. We've talked about this a lot through Exodus and even in this book, uh, we have no relationship whatsoever. We, by we, I mean New Testament Christians, uh, the church. We have no relationship to keeping any part of the Sabbath. Every day is a Sabbath of rest for us because we're in Jesus Christ. So the issue for us is what are we doing with our freedom? Are we involved in God's house on earth? Is the church a priority? Good questions to ask and answer. Now the merchants and sellers of all kinds of wares lodged outside Jerusalem once or twice. And I warned them and I said to them, why do you spend the night around the wall? If you do it again, I will lay hands on you. From that time on, they came no more on the Sabbath. I will lay hands on you is like Bruce Banner saying, you wouldn't like me when I'm angry. I mean, he made in no uncertain terms, Nehemiah let them know that I better not see you here again. Verse 22 And I commanded the Levites that they should cleanse themselves and that they should go and guard the gates to sanctify the Sabbath day. Remember me, O my God, concerning this also, and spare me according to the greatness of your mercy. Nehemiah jump-started the Levites, getting them out of the fields and back to the house of God, doubling as gatekeepers. Simple exhortation here. Those believers you know who don't attend a local church, try to jump-start them by inviting them. Put loving pressure on them. You know, we talk about peer pressure all the time. There is a positive peer pressure. Uh, Peer pressure doesn't always just lead people astray. Sometimes it keeps them from going astray. I can name dozens, if not hundreds, of people who were better off when they were attending church than they are now. Not just our church, but but those are the ones I'm most familiar with. There was a, you know, you might say, well, you know, if that's what was really in their heart, then, well, all of our hearts are deceived and wicked, right? Uh, Sometimes people need to be involved in order to check them in certain ways. There's a positive pressure. Uh, And and so these guys that are out there blowing it just say, hey, we need you back in church. You know, there's there's an empty chair for you. And and just uh, harp on it. Now, Two of the three times Nehemiah says, remember me, are in the verses we just covered. It's worth noting that in none of those instances does he say, remember me as the guy who rebuilt the wall in only 52 days. Let me put it another way. If you were asked, what did Nehemiah accomplish? You'd most likely say he rebuilt Jerusalem's wall in only 52 days. 
and I'm not, I just think that's the universal assessment of who Nehemiah was. And, And we talked about that remarkable accomplishment. And the wall was certainly important on the one hand, but on the other hand, it was nothing. Could God protect Jerusalem without a wall? Of course he could. And Nehemiah, from his own mouth, he says, I want to be remembered for what God values, not stones and mortar. And what, he matter, what matters to him in this first case is his house on the earth. Not, as I said, the stick and stone structure itself, but its ministry of redemption and salvation. So Nehemiah said, whatever else I did, and even the building of the wall, it was so this house of yours, this temple could uh, function properly and, and could go out as a beacon, not just to Israel, but to the whole world. It's pretty remarkable when you think about that, but we need to think that way. You need to stop and think about what you're saying sometimes. Say, well, Nehemiah, the wall, okay, is that what, is that what he would really want on, as an epitaph? I built the wall in 52 days. No, he's telling you, no, I, I, want, I want it known that I set the stage, if anything, so that worship could take place, so that you could be praised, so that the people could be blessed so that converts could come. That was his idea. I can't leave this point without quoting 1 Timothy 3.15. Paul says, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. Based on your conduct in the church, what is a fitting epitaph for your tombstone? Only you can answer that. The second point, we're gonna go back to verses one through three and then the rest of the chapter. So returning to verse one, we learn that Israel had not remained separated from the Gentiles surrounding them. They had, in fact, intermarried, a thing forbidden for good reason in God's law. On that day, verse one, they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people, and in it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever come into the assembly of God because they had not met the children of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. However, our God turned the curse into a blessing. So it was when they had heard the law that they separated all the mixed multitude from Israel. So verse two, great summary of a longer story in which Balaam was hired to curse Israel, but he couldn't do it. Wanting to get paid anyway, he told Israel's enemies to send Moabite women into their camp to entice the Israelite men, and then God himself would discipline his own people, which in fact he did. The story from the word, they knew it, but they didn't heed it. Classic case of hearers not being doers. Anointed by God, Nehemiah brought the story back to their remembrance and they immediately practiced its implications. I was thinking about this. One reason a believer should attend church services regularly, you hear things you already know, but you're not obeying as the Holy Spirit anoints the word in your hearing. You know, a lot of, essentially, if you've, if you've gone to church for any length of time, you're gonna hear the same thing over and over again. Maybe not the same commentary, but you're gonna read God's word and and even in your devotions, over and over and over again. But what this is pointing out is that you can can know something and it has no effect on you. And so Nehemiah brings this up and it directly ministers to the people. And so one reason you go to church is to hear things you already know so that the Holy Spirit can say, hey, you know this, you, but you're not a doer. You're hearing this, but you're not a doer. And it's a, it's a really pleasant ministry of the Holy Spirit. Now, in those days, I also saw Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab, and half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod and could not speak the language of Judah, 
but spoke according to the language of one or the other people. There were practical reasons for prohibiting intermarriage. The children born down the line would no longer speak or understand Hebrew, the language of their Bible. God's word would be lost to future generations, and we wouldn't have it today. It's remarkable how quickly, really, without divine intervention, this whole language could have died out. Verse 25, so I contended with them and cursed them, struck some of them and pulled out their hair and made them swear by God, saying, you shall not give your daughters as wives to their sons, nor take their daughters for your sons or yourselves. I was uh, at Save Mart before I came this morning buying some, something for the cafe and uh, the gal, one of the gals in there I've known for years, and uh, she says, so what's the sermon today? I said, oh, we're finishing Nehemiah. And she goes, whoa, anything exciting going on? I go, yeah, Nehemiah pulls out some hair, not his own. She goes, really, literally? I go, yeah. In the Old Testament, it was kind of a sign of, you know, shame. She goes, wow. I go, yeah, we don't do that at our church, so you're safe if you want to come, so. <laughs> now, before saying anything else, let me point out the Jewish marriages in which a Gentile partner converted are not considered intermarrying. There's plenty of cases in the Old Testament where a Gentile came into Judaism by conversion. God was all about saving people, saving Gentiles. But mixed marriage, intermarriage, that's a Jew and a pagan Gentile who's worshiping idols. He probably pulled out their beard hair. Uh, it was a sign of discipline to go around with your beard violently removed. Um, that would hurt. I know my brother one time, there's, uh, I didn't know what it was, but waxing, you know, so where you wax hair. He got tired of shaving. He thought he could wax his face. Not a good idea. I don't know how many layers of skin came off, but it was a while before he looked normal. Uh, but uh, Nehemiah was, I mean, he was, a, he was a dude. He was like, hey, you're supposed to be disciplined. I think I'll pull your beard hair out. And he did. Uh, so we have, no, as I said, we have no such practice here. <laughs> but did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin by these things? Yet among many nations, there was no king like him who was beloved of his God, and God made him king over Israel. Nevertheless, pagan women caused even him to sin. Should we then hear of your doing all this great evil, transgressing against our God by marrying pagan women? So Nehemiah grounded everything in the word and used examples skillfully, and, and now he appeals to Solomon. We should be able to do that as well. Sometimes we're not so much looking for a verse as we are a situation, as, a, as we are an illustration. Because, and you'd be surprised if you open your mind to this, how many things in the lives of other people you think, oh, that reminds me of this. The, the one that always kills the gals in counseling is, you know, and they, they come in, they say, my husband's a fool. I said, well, everybody kind of knows that. But uh, nevertheless, uh, when uh, Abigail had a foolish husband, Nabal, she did the right thing and trusted God to do the rest. And so, oh, I knew you were going to say that. And, and so sometimes these, because these, they're not just stories, they're histories. They're, they're, they're spiritual stories they're examples of how to really apply God's word, and especially these Old Testament stories. So uh, think about that. One of the sons of Jehoiada, the son of Eliashib, the high priest, was a son-in-law of Sanballat the Horonite. Therefore, I drove him from me. Sanballat's another enemy of Nehemiah. This was an evil strategy of Satan, a web of intrigue and interference. Decisive action was needed. And so I like Nehemiah. No procedure, no due process. 
He didn't say, let's have a meeting and talk about this. He says, you, get out of here right now or you're gonna end up like this other guy, beardless in a few minutes and stuff. And now, I'm not elevating his violence or anything. I'm just saying that this is how they conducted themselves in those days. And Nehemiah was no mealy-mouthed compromiser. He didn't look at a situation. And, I mean, if a situation was definite, this is sin, he didn't say, well, let's, let's meet and talk about this. Maybe, maybe there's some reasons for it. Yeah, there's a reason for it. You're a sinner, and you shouldn't be here. Get out now while you can under your own power. And so I kind of like that uh, in the sense of just being direct. Uh, you don't need to be violent to be direct and say, this is what's happening, and this is what needs to be done. Remember them, oh my God, because they have defiled the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. A couple of things you definitely do not want to be remembered for, defiling yourself and or others with you. As I said, I've heard too many empty eulogies. The final three verses summarize. Uh, Verse 30, thus I cleansed them of everything pagan. That is, he set in order their individual houses And then verse 30 goes on, I also assign duties to the priests and the Levites, each to his service. I also assign duties to the priests and the Levites, each to his service. I already said that. And to bringing the wood offering and the first fruits at the appointed times. And so here he set in order the house of God. He says, remember me, O my God, for good. We do. And we can be assured that God does as Nehemiah awaits his physical resurrection from the grave. So what do you want on your tombstone? If you want God to remember you for good, here's what Micah said God is looking for in each of us. He has shown you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you, but you do justly and love mercy and walk humbly with your God. And so even a guy like Nehemiah who built the wall and was used so mightily, God was looking for these traits while he was doing it. And so whatever you're called to do uh, becomes meaningful when you Uh, do justly and love mercy and walk humbly with God and let people know that it's because of God that you're doing so. And then, of course, the book of Ecclesiastes ends with what would be a great epitaph for anyone. I'll adapt it for your tombstone. He or she feared God and kept his commandments. That's really all there is to say.